Hi. How many of you were here last night? Raise your hand. Se several of you were here in the training for children and youth workers. And the rest of you, how many of you would be parents? Yay. That's good. I don't want to ask you to raise your hand, but how many of you would be parents if you knew now, you knew then what you know now? Don't raise your hand. Maybe too exhausted. How many of you, your oldest child is 13 or younger? Oldest child, 13 or younger? Most of you. Uh, okay, here's what I want you to know. Because you came this morning, none of the things we talk about will apply to you. <laughs> because you're going to just have this thing absolutely nailed. That's the reason we're going as long as 1130, okay? We, got, we just want to make sure we get every possible thing you think of as a parent covered. And so that's why, and I'll be out of content by about 11. And then from there, we'll just praise the Lord for how easy it's going to be to parent our kids. <laughs> that's for those of you with your oldest child's 13 or younger. Uh, how many of you, your oldest child's 18 or older? Raise your hand. A few, this whole row, they're in the front. Notice, they're in the very back and they're in the very front. That says something, okay? Don't tell them I just completely lied to them, all right? Uh, you're in for it. When, when our kids were little, um, I, I'm a guy that cries at beer commercials and, and at almost every chief game. <clears throat> so... I hope not tomorrow. That'd be awful. Uh, but uh, when Katie was our daughter, uh, we, got, we had two boys, and then we finally got our daughter. When Katie was like three and four, she was, she was one of those little kids that just had this joy and was a dancer coming out of the womb, you know. I mean, just, just she, a lot like her father, just this kind of slithe. And she was a beautiful dancer and so fun. And so that's the time when video cameras weighed 100 to 125 kilos, remember? And you'd bring them in and you'd, you'd go like this. And, uh, and I'm videotaping, and she would always sit with all the other little girls when the other girls were dancing during the recitals twice a year because she'd say, look at my dad, watch my dad. And every single time I would just weep. While they're, while they're up there, because these little you know, four-year-old girls going, the boogie-woogie, you know. And, but they thought I weep because it was so cute. And that was true. But it was also because I have spent my entire career trying to get into the minds and hearts of young people and realizing what happens to the beautiful four-year-old dancers, what goes on with a seven-year-old kid playing soccer when they're 17, and what happens to the, the kid that is just loving his first video game and so excited that he learns to play his first chord on a guitar at 10 years old, and then he's 27 and gets out of rehab. See, the reality of living in a fallen world is mean none, none of us are immune. I loved how you started this today of like a garden. That's right. It's not just weeds that grow up, and, and, the, and the books promise way more than they deliver, you guys. The, the, the front row will tell you. Are you guys all therapists or something? I mean, this is perfect. The front and back row. Um, there's no magic formula. I'm going to start there, not in there. I'm going to end with good and going to scare the crap out of you. <laughs> so can I say crap here? I've said twice, crap, crap, four times. Um, uh, because the reality is daunting. Maybe that's why you're here. Um, the blessing is immense. There's nothing more powerful in your entire life that will affect your soul than the state of your kids. And this is not just for women. This is also for left brain in denial men, which is all redundant, so we can just keep going, all right? Uh, here we go. I'm, I'm going to lead you through what is a summary of the 
latest and best scholarship that I've been able to find, uh, both in what's called psychosocial development of growing up and what kids need, and also grounded in uh, the most robust, most biblical theology of what does it mean to care for young people, for kids that I know of. I, I teach at a place called Fuller Theological Seminary. I've been there almost 18 years. Uh, before that, I was at Denver Seminary. I actually had Chris as a student at Denver Seminary and then also as a doctoral student at Fuller. And I was there for six. I worked for Young Life for 15 years. I'm 37 years old. And uh, boy, did I start young. Here we go. Um, <clears throat> this is an example of what we're dealing with. I know it was a long time ago, and that just shows you. Is Ten years ago, there was a four-page spread in the Seattle paper that was trying to help people figure out why are kids such a pain in the neck. And when I talk about kids, that roughly most people don't start to hate kids until they're about 14. Because up until the time they're about 14, they are relatively within the, the uh, circle of our ability to influence, punish, direct, control them. But somehow when they begin to get a little more voice, all of a sudden people start going, oh, wait a minute, they're pushing back. Wait a minute, I don't like how they talk. Wait a minute, they stand outside 7-Eleven, those poor boys that can't afford a belt, you know the kind of kids I'm talking about. And... Uh, and so then we got to come up with words to talk about. And this was a four-page spread. Now, what I want you to know, why I kept this all these years, is I want you to notice something. In the four-page spread by these experts all over Seattle, it was interesting, is they, they, they had an assumption, and then they went directly to the answer. What's the assumption that's not up for grabs in that uh, headline? Kids are spoiled. Done. Period. End of story. There's a book called The Narcissist Generation. I don't know if you've heard of it or seen it. I was speaking at Calvin College a couple of years ago at a thing they called the January Series where they bring in these people that do work in scholarship and they, a lot of folks and they beam it all over the place. And I gave this impassioned talk about how we care for kids at the church and they came up with a Q&A afterwards and the first question was, last year our closing speaker was the writer of the book, The Narcissist Generation. What do you think of that? Well, I just was still on adrenaline. There's 1,200 people in the crowd. I'm on this, it was a major thing. It was such a cool, that I'm, I'm still in the fired up mode. And I go, I not only hate the book, I am so deeply offended that any adult would have the gall to say something like that. Which was, you know, an honorary thing to say about a colleague who's written books and is a professor somewhere. Narcissism is a pathological diagnosis. One of the most serious pathological um, issues that anyone would face. It's almost as bad as being you know, male. So, I mean, it's really, really up there. And to, to label an entire generation as the problem, that's what we're facing. A world where most people don't understand kids, especially as they get older, and the only way we can deal with them is to figure out they are the problem. We've got to adjust our behavior in order to deal with their pathology, their brokenness, their stupidity, their lack of understanding. That's not what we're talking about today. We're talking about our awareness of who they are, what we've given them, and what they need so that we can adjust. P kids today are spoiled. What to do? Well, first, if a kid's spoiled, it's not the kid's fault they're spoiled. If a kid's a narcissist, meaning they're so self-centered and egotistic, there's a reason. If a kid acts out, there's a reason. So we're going to start as advocates for your children. We live in a world that has become more and more fragmented. Whether or not you're like the guy at my little hotel this morning as I'm getting my oatmeal who decided to, I told 
Paul about this, uh, that it costed me with the reason there was, the winds were on the Fox News. It's one, now they have Fox News on every one of these Marriott's. Um, I'm sure that there's a correlation somewhere. But uh, he said, it's because that the earth is tilting differently because it's in the Bible. I thought, really? Wow, I haven't found that part of the Bible yet. And, and, he, and then he said something about how climate change and global warming is just, well, okay, whatever. But it, one thing is true is uh, sociologically there is a breakup of our polarized cap. We become more and more fragmented. We have fewer and fewer intimate relationships. We have less and less authentic community, even as a society in our neighborhoods, much, even in our churches. But what people are using a different word now called atomization, that life has become so solitary and individualistic that our kids grow up where they've discovered their identity through competition and comparison, performance, conformity, and image. It's 2014. How many of you have daughters? Almost everybody. I got a daughter too. She's 26. Katie has reminded me for the last, ever since she hit about 14, she said, Dad, every single time you speak to parents, I want you to use this word, objectification. And she's now a second-year marriage and family therapist student, married to a, a, a doctor, finished his residency. I'm married to a marriage and family therapist as well. And it is a fact that in 2014, your daughter will be subject multiple times over the course of her elementary, middle school, high school years of knowing that her value and worth to most people and the, especially the systems and structures will be according to how she is perceived as a sexual object. And her sense of self and worth will be identified according to her ability to allure the attention of a male. It's 2014, and we still treat our daughters like things. But our sons are also struggling because they have grown up in a culture of performance and conformity where they got to find their sense of self by how that they measure up against other guys, whether it's on the athletic field or in school or at church or how they feel about how they look or their body or how they talk, who they hang out with. And on so many different levels and so many different ways, your kids are growing up in a culture where they're defined by externals most of the time they can't even control. And they're simply trying to find their way and their place. The great joy, the great privilege, the great honor, the great heartache is the journey that you and I are in for. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. I want more than anything else that you guys recognize that the journey your kid is on is a journey that desperately needs your proactive, adult, concentrated care. It's no longer the day of just having kids, getting them to go to school, getting them to do homework, clean their room, do what they're supposed to do, and when they're 18, they can figure it out. Those days are completely gone. It's a completely different world. So we're not talking about us today, although a lot of things I'm going to say will likely cause some of you at least if you are moderately self-aware and haven't hidden your soul away in a locked closet, that you realize that you also carry some woundedness and some issues around with you from the time you went through what's called adolescence. In fact, most of us think that our own, the things that we hold on to that shame us, that embarrass us, that make us feel insecure and sad and lonely, which is a universal experience. Longing and loss is the universal experience of all people in the fallen world. But we kind of think of it as 
something, our pain and our history is in like a little wagon behind us. And yeah, we got to carry it around. It's kind of tied to us. But we can hide it from others. We can throw it in a closet. We can pretend it doesn't exist. And maybe some of the things I say today will spark you to, to think differently about your own history and your own life. There's two ways to deal with that. One is, is to pretend like that's really not true or to hide it away. It's, it's kind of like um, we have this garage of our soul. And what we do is like when you get out of high school, you, you, you know, like you get a yearbook that summarizes it. All right, we all have a summary of our own element, elementary school, middle school, and high school. In fact, I said last night, my two worst years were seventh grade. <laughs> Ma'am, that's funny. You can smile. It's okay. Good. Thank you. <laughs> She's looking at me like, what's he, what, what is he, he, when's he going to talk about how to discipline my kid? I just want to, I need the four tips. Let's go. I'm a type A. Let's get at it. <clears throat> uh, I went to Nallwood Junior High here in Kansas City. Anybody else go to Nallwood? Come on. Yay! You know what it does in my heart. Stop it. Does Brookwood Elementary School? See? There you go. I kissed Gail Hendrickson in the barn next door to it. Sixth grade. And I wrote a book about it. And I think I got sued 20 years ago. Uh, but here's what's interesting is you get out of high school and, there's, and your whole soul is like, okay, I'm ready to move on with my life. But I've got this jumble of history, experiences, and memories. What do I do with it? We create what's called a narrative. A narrative is not a story. It's a summary of events and experiences that we gather together to provide meaning and to put them in a box. So you pour all of your experiences and, and events that you've gone through, good and bad, from middle school and high school, and you pour them on the kitchen table, and you go like this, and you shove them into a shoebox. You put the top of the shoebox on, you get duct tape, you duct tape it, and then you write with a Sharpie on the outside, the one word that describes your life experience to that time. Everybody think of a one word to describe your high school experience. Go. Don't say it out loud. One word. Okay, stop. Um, some of you had multiple words. Some of you went, oh, man, why would you make me go there? Because you're going to be parents of kids going through life. Now, here's the interesting thing. How many of you would say that word is generally positive or fantastic? Raise your hand. Notice, okay, this does not count, sir. That's not good. Okay, I, we're looking at the 15% range. How many of you would say it would be on the negative to really devastating side? Okay, we're probably in about 20%. How many of you say it's somewhere kind of a mixed bag in the middle? Exactly right. That's about 30 to 40% of us. But here's what you do. In order to move through adult life, you have to take your own history, and at different points, you take all of the jumble of these incongruous experiences and feelings, put them into the shoebox, put it right in the Sharpie. Awesome, great, tiring, exhausting, wild, fun, frightening, scary. And then you walk it out to the garage of your soul, you stick it on the shelf. And you have a narrative from elementary school. Maybe if you move to middle elementary school, you have two boxes out there. Maybe you got one from middle school, one for high school. Maybe you got one from your college or young adult years. Maybe you got one from middle age, depending on how old you are. And you got these boxes. So somebody says, how was high school for you? Your kid goes, what's it like for you? You're, you're on me all the time. And you go, high school is the best time of your life. <laughs> and that will be, many of you will say that at some point. And here's... The kid will never say this out loud, but here's what they think. Awesome. Really? Thank you. What you're saying is this is as good as life gets. 
and it sucks. Way to go, mom. Love that. World is completely different from when you and I went to high school. If you're, if you're 31 years old, you are 20 years, two decades removed from middle school. Two decades. A lot's happened in two decades. So that's, that's saying, here we go. Let's take a little journey together. This is going to be very fun. i got to get us all on the same page of understanding what basically we're dealing with. This is the word that summarizes it. It's kind of a fancy word. Individuation is how many people, especially in the psychotherapy world, the counseling world, use this word. It was originally coined by a guy named Carl Jung. Maybe you've heard of him. Theologian, psychologist. Uh, played right field for the Mets, what, did, sold women's shoes at Nordstrom's in Manhattan. He was a very eclectic guy, all right? Um, <clears throat> he was on a ticket with Sarah Palin and Yoda at one point politically. And Carl Jung used this word to describe actually when you finally land as a unique individual and you finally rest in who you are and you're ready to truly live from that from the inside out. And he said it basically doesn't happen until you're about 40 because in your 20s and 30s, you are, you are still trying to prove to everybody you're worthy of being in the game. So life really begins at 40, according to Jung, and there's a lot to that. You're there yet? Congratulations. 50? I was going to say between you know, 40 and 80, somewhere in that range, sure. Anyhow, uh, here's interesting, but most, uh, most everybody else uses the word to describe how, when you get out of adolescence. So you're a child... And you're dependent on your family system. And then you're an adult. As Chris said, you're interdependent, kind of connected. Everybody else is a peer. What's in the middle? It's this period of trying to figure out how to become an adult. And for all of time, in every culture around the globe, you're either a child or an adult for all of time. And then the culture took care of your own individuation, your own uniqueness. Your uniqueness was celebrated in the context of community. Nobody even asked the question, who am I? in terms of development until Eric Erickson in the 50s and 60s. It was an existential question for all of time in ancient literature and poetry and song. But the, the idea of, of what makes me unique so I can become an adult, that's what adolescence is. Those of you that have children that are four or six or eight years old or even 12, they're just at 12 or so, they're beginning this thing called adolescence. Well, this is where you begin to go... I need to insert myself into adulthood. That's the adolescent journey. That's what individuation means. I land as an interdependent peer. So in the process of moving from childhood to adulthood, I am in a process of individuating. Okay? And there are three tasks associated with this that every parent needs to recognize. Three tasks of the adolescent journey. Here's the first one. It's this idea of asking the unique question of who am I? Eric Erickson identified this as the key task of adolescence. In the 50s and 60s, a lot of people have been studying this ever since. Secular psychology tells us that identity is something we choose. We, we make decisions and step into our identity. James Marcy, if any of you have training in this, maybe you took this in college or some of you are therapists or maybe even PhD students or people, great. But James Marcy is the key guy on this that you go through a lot of life and sometimes you choose to go after identity. Sometimes you choose to put it off and just kind of live and there's a different words in different stages. The, the reality is, though, theologically, and we're Christian, even if you're not you know, fully devoted to Christ and you're just exploring this, theologically, as a person who, who wants to know what God says about this issue, identity for your kid is not about identity 
formation by their choices. Identity is a discovery of something deeper. And here's the problem. Everything in our culture defines our identity by those things I talked about before. When a kid kicks an extra point and you're so proud of him and that's all you talk about the next day at the breakfast table, your, your team won the game because your kid kicked that extra point. Way to go, Johnny. You kicked that extra point. You're awesome. You're an extra point kicker. Yay. High five. Oh, great. The kid realizes my identity is as an extra point kicker. That's who I am. So when the kid is a good or great athlete, then their identity is all centered around by everybody, how they t- treat them for their athleticism. And they know that they are, as an athlete, only as good as their last performance as an athlete. As a scholar, the worst thing parents can say to a kid in terms of school, you're not living up to your potential. Because potential is an impossible goal. It's an amorphous moving target. And yet, if a kid's a good student or we perceive they're a good student or they're supposed to be a smart kid because they're like us and they're elite, we don't actually say that they're better than everybody else, but we actually, especially in a crowd in this part of the world, actually believes it in in our rhetoric and the way we treat our kids. Is that there's something unique about you compared to others, and others can get certain grades for some of you, Others can get B's and C's, but your kid has the potential to get A's. Why aren't they getting A's? You're a scholar. That's who you are. So we treat them that their identity is connected to their performance. If they can't quite perform, at least if they conform to the expectations and agendas of adults they serve, then their identity can somehow as I'm a good kid, or that's a sweet child, or he's really nice. And then we got objectification, both for males and females. It's image. Who am I? I'm good looking. I look great in jeans. I can get people to like me. Here's the problem. None of that's identity. None of that's who your kid is. But everything in our culture teaches us that identity is about who I am on the outside. The problem is what happens when that falls apart? It's almost worse for our kids, and many of you, this is your experience, especially those of you that have kids that are 13 and younger, when you first held your child, you did believe that this kid's elite, this kid's different, this kid's set apart, this kid's better than everybody else. Lord, you've given us the gift we've longed for, the perfect child. And you can maintain that facade until you actually bring them home. And all of a sudden they grow, back, grow up and the first word out of their mouth, you want to say it's dada, papa, mama. No, what is it? No, it's asserting their independence, their individuation. The first separation and individuation, Margaret Mahler said, is about mm, two to two and a half, three years old. Is That's where they separate from the role of infant and move into the role of toddler. And the role of toddler is to assert their own unique journey of individuation of going, I'm not just the infant in your arms. I now have to figure out how to walk into my room by myself. I need to know how to move into life. The second individuation stage is where Peter Bluff said, where you move from toddler and child into an adolescent, where you have to assert more independence, where we send them off to middle school in sixth grade, and we expect them to live to a certain level according to who they are. So almost every person, every one of us will say to our kid, be yourself. The problem is in this culture, ourselves, we got so many different selves because we got to have a different self in math than we do in English, than we do in sports, than we do in drama, than we do at church. 
which self do you want me to be? I did the largest study ever of kids, uh, teenagers' attitudes and perspectives on their own life journey. It's called Ethnography. Major study, the book's called Hurt, Inside the World of Today's Teenagers. Then Hurt 2.0 is the second edition a couple years ago. And I started as a a substitute teacher in a large high school where I had the permission of the superintendent and the principals, co-principals, and the whole school knew I was there as a researcher. But the way to get access to kids without getting parental consent was that I... Uh, half the half, the, which is horrible. The reason why we have lame research on kids is you got this horrible thing called parental consent. Because parents got to go. It's okay to talk to my kid, but see if you're in the education system, you de facto give permission for people to have conversations with your kids that are unfiltered. Now some say that's scary. I say that's just socialization. You know, as kids grew up for all of time. Parents didn't have, you know, oh, no, you're not a cobbler. You're not allowed to talk to my kid when he walks by your shop. No, we just talk to each other. We encounter each other. We deal with each other. And so as a scholar, I I was a substitute teacher. I'd teach half the class. And then the second half of the class I was subbing for, I would say, okay, now you get to talk to me. What are we going to talk to you about? I don't care. Whatever you want. I'm going to tell the world what you think. No, you're not. Yeah, I am. About three weeks in, this one in California, they do this thing called snack, where they go first and second period, and then they have this quad uh, for 15 minutes. They don't have lunchrooms in California. They have they build they build the school. Um, they've actually sold the architectural design of high schools in California to the prison system. It's a really wonderful, efficient way. Because you build this this kind of circle. Almost every single high school is like this with a big quad in the middle with about 15 or 20 um, areas of about 12 to 15 square feet of, of curbs in a square and dirt and a dead tree in the middle of it. So that's the architecture of a high school campus in L.A. if you've ever seen that. Or all over California. And so I was at snack, which is a time for a kid to grab a quick smoke. Um, you know, between third and fourth periods, you give them 15 minutes, and all the kids are standing snacking, and they're all doing their thing, and I, and I go, and I just stand there, and all they knew so far is like you, is I was attractive, that's all they really had to go on, <clears throat> probably athletic, but they couldn't really tell, you know, and, and there I am, I just stand there like I Love Lucy, you know, hiding behind a tree when Ricky's singing, just kind of, and it, it, research shows us that it, this is why reality TV works. If a camera's on, it takes between 7 and 14 seconds for you to forget the camera's there. That's why reality TV works. The same thing works doing sociological research with, with kids. Is you just stand there, and they're all uncomfortable for a minute, but then they just flock back. If you saw the TV show, I mean the movie Mean Girls, a little like that. That was in a lunchroom. So I'm with kids all over the place. And after snack, this one guy sat down with me, third period, and he goes... He goes, okay, I'm blowing off third period to talk to you. Okay. He goes, uh, we've decided we're going to tell you stuff. This is the spokesperson for 3,200 3, high school kids. Awesome. <laughs> so this guy's sitting there, and he goes, uh, this is like a jail. Really? Oz was big in, in HBO at the time, and he goes, see that woman walking across? I said, yeah, I've had her in class. He goes, I know you've had her in class. She's a narc. She's about 24, but we all know it. She's an undercover drug agent, I think FBI or something, but we all know it, so we're, we've got a plan that different guys are going to hit on her at different parties, and we're really playing her. This is so fun. Just why, And she's walking, and I thought she's just a cute 17-year-old. Um, and I had to be a little careful, you know, at that point with what was in my pockets and things like that. I'm kidding. That's a joke. So we're sitting, and he goes, um, but also we decided you're the only adult that doesn't have a hammer. 
what do you mean I don't have a hammer? You're the only adult that can't hurt us, so we're going to tell you the truth. Really? Thanks. So for the next eight months, I was on holy ground. I had to take off my shoes a lot because they were honest and they told me stuff. I got over a 1,000 letters, poems, notes, and songs from kids, most of them anonymous, and I'd take them back to my car. And the methodology is I didn't write down stuff about individual kids. I just got impressions. But I'd get three to five of these a day, and I'd sit in my car, and it was unbelievable of the stuff the kids said. And this is the superstar kids as well as the down-and-out kids. The broken kids, the lonely kids, the sad kids, the popular kids, the athletic kids, the student body officers. I mean, the broad spectrum. And these letters, 70% of these thousand letters, notes, songs, and poems were about this question of identity. Everybody expects me to be somebody, and I have no idea who I am because I'm so busy pleasing the agendas of others. Then we did... Uh, we had a literature review team of master's and doctoral folks to say, here's what the experts are saying. I'm doing the only ethnography ever done, major, all over the North America. I did all these focus groups. I did 17. I reported 12 officially because five of them, parents pulled their permission slips in the, in the focus groups because kids brought up oral sex. I'm sorry. I've said oral sex <laughs> twice. Oral sex, oral sex, four times. Crap, five. Oral sex, five. Now we've done ten things that are completely offensive. This is great. Um, what's interesting about that is your kid wants to figure out how do I survive in this world where there's multiple expectations, and yet I get the greatest blessing when I'm good at something, so I have to live into the praise that I get in order to get somebody to pay attention to me, but I know that's not really me, so I'm always fighting against having to prove myself so somebody likes me. If you read Malcolm Gladwell's Outlier, it's similar to that. That a kid that is a good student in second grade, they learn they're going to get people to like them if they're a good student, so they'll work harder at being a better student. A kid that's a slightly better athlete when they're in third grade will get more attention from a coach and a parent, especially if the parent has resources, and the kid will get more coaching so they'll be better, and they'll, they're not necessarily better athletes or better students. The research is showing without question, that our sharpest kids, our smartest kids, our most articulate kids, our best athletes are not necessarily any of those things. They're simply the best adapters of the expectations of adults. And if you want your child to grow up as being a very powerful adapter to what other people say they ought to be, then welcome to American culture, especially in the upper and middle class. But if you want your child to be a unique, individuated person that lives from the inside out, that has incredible sense of self and can rise up against the expectations of others, whether or not they're good or evil, but they're a, they're a peer agent in the adult community, you've got a totally different journey ahead of you. Which do you want your kid to be? Their identity from the inside out? for the person they are. See, theologically, God has created your child as his own precious child. They are on loan to you. They do not belong to you. God himself has declared them precious and unique, and that's their identity, is that God claims them as his own. It's identity discovery so that they can be free as opposed to identity formation where they're subject to forces outside of themselves. And every single one of your kids is trying to figure out who am I. So the second one is this, is autonomy. People love talking about autonomy as this. In fact, articles, uh, there was an article with a couple of friends of mine 
Christian Smith at Notre Dame and Jeffrey Arnett, uh, who's a professor, and they wrote this article that talked about kids got to develop autonomy, which means it's about responsibility. So being respons- we need to make kids responsible because kids are so dang irresponsible, let's make them responsible. So let's figure out how to do that financially, figure out how to do that with school, figure out how to do it with their room, with their commitments. You're seven years old. You're playing video games. Your mom goes, the coach just called, wants you to play competitive soccer. You're really good. Awesome. Thanks. Okay. Do you want to play in competitive next season? Sure. Great. Yes, he'd love to be on the competitive team. What you've just signed yourself up for, any of you know? The next, the next several years of missing mostly church, of spending thousands of dollars, of having yourself have to hang out for hundreds and hundreds of hours with people you don't like in order for your kid to be constantly yelled at and berated by people they don't even know in order to be able to play high school soccer, in order to possibly get that scholarship offer to Sterling. It's a college. Sorry, I just thought I'd help you out with that. What's really fascinating about that is youth sports builds fill in the blank. Character, exactly right. What does character mean? You, you are competitive. I'm seven. I'm tired. I don't want to go to practice. They yell at me all the time. You made a commitment. Character is living up to your commitments. The kid's seven. Mom, dad, step parent, you made the commitment. You go to practice. Let the kid take a nap. <laughs> you begin to kind of get what I'm talking about. Autonomy is not about choices. Autonomy is not about being responsible. Autonomy is about the source of those choices. Almost every mom, dad, pro officer will say to a kid when they leave school, leave for school besides they love you, love you, love you. We say it so often. What they hear is what, how we treat them as opposed to the words we use. Words are good when they label the truth. Words are destructive when they actually are being violated by how we treat them. So when you say I love you more than you actually proactively look them in the eye, take them seriously, listen to their opinion, get their ideas, and whether they're 6 or 16 or 26. But besides I love you, we say, oh, honey, be yourself and make good choices from the time they're in second grade. Okay. Fifth grade, okay. Seventh grade, okay? And be yourself and make good choices. By the time they have 15 or 16, the brain moves into abstraction. They start to begin to realize, hold on a second. They won't tell you this. They're going, okay. They won't turn around and go, wait a minute. Stop it. You've said it my whole life. Which self do you want me to be? Do you want me to be the self that grandma thinks I am? Do you want me to be the self that I am in small group? Do you want me to be the self I am on Friday nights? At a party, you want me to be the self that I am in the math class where I'm a pain in the neck to that math teacher because I hate her? Or do you want me to be the self I am in Spanish because I like the Spanish teacher and I sit in the front and I'm a good kid? Which self are you wanting me to be first? Secondly, make good choices. You don't want me to make good choices. No parent wants their kid to make choices. You do not. What you want them to do is to live a life that will avoid having the school or the sheriff's office calling you out of work which I have experienced multiple times from both of them as a parent. What we say, what we mean by saying make good choices is make the kind of choice that will not embarrass us, that will not make me sad, that will not make me scared, that will not make me angry. Make the kind of choice to keep yourself seen as a great, wonderful, compliant, performance-driven kid. But we say make good choices. A kid knows you don't want me to make a choice. You want me to conform to the agendas and expectations of others. 
Listen, my kids are 33, almost 30, and 26. My wife is 27 herself. This is even more fun. But, we, okay, we've blown this a lot. We have had conversations with our adult children about the, all these years of, we, we just want to protect you. We just cared. We're just trying to watch out for you and realizing that you're, you're going to make a lot of mistakes along the way. But then they'd go, yeah, but if I kept doing everything that you wanted me to do, I would never learn who I am in the process. Autonomy is not about choices. It's about the source of those choices. In fact, it really is about power. When your kid was first born or you adopted your child and you first held him in your arms, unless you really need, and it's possible, you need a lot of counseling in this area, you did not look at them and say, oh, I hope you are world-class lemming. I hope you are the perfect straight arrow down the middle B-plus student, second-string defensive back that just everybody says is a nice kid. I hope you never make your mark. I hope you never fail. I hope you never hurt yourself or anybody else. I just hope life is just this perfect, sweet little path for you because I love you so much. None of you had that attitude, right? Especially your first kid, the first time you had a child adopted or birthed, and you held them, you looked at them. It's like, this is unbelievable. This is a miracle. This new life we've been entrusted with, this bundle of power and energy, you're going to change the world. You're going to be an agent for so many good things. I can't wait to see what God does with you because you are someone that I love and I'm going to sacrifice for to make sure you have the best opportunity to be a world changer. The problem is, Everything in parenting, everything in education, everything in sports, and everything that the media supports is the journey of kids is don't exert any personal power. Don't have voice. Don't push the edges. Stay right inside the middle. And yet for a kid to develop their sense of self, they've got to believe that they got power. Everything we say to them, especially in Christendom, and that's, I'm going to say crap a sixth time. Oops. Sorry, this is an evangelical free church. I'm going to lean more on the free than the evangelical side of it. I was an evangelical free pastor for two and a half years. That's all they could handle, but that was really fun. Little Mermaid used to come to our churches in Burbank. She did. It, the pews, it was a mess, but it, we really had a great time with her there, Jody Benson. Nonetheless, um, your kid needs to push back. Your kid needs to express their voice. Your kid needs to believe that they're powerful in order for them to become an adult. Denise Clark Pope tells us that our best kids have been so handicapped because they've been great adapters and they deny their own sense of power. This is a major problem in elite schools, by the way. Most Christian parents who are committed, who believe in the standard cultural view of how to best prepare your kids for adulthood, is by giving them every opportunity, giving them the extra coaches, committing fraud when they apply for college, called the SAT tutor. Do you ever think about that before? Because it's supposed to be a standardized test, but if we have the money and the resources, we can game the system by having the best SAT tutors. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty, but, you know, I've repented of when we did that for all three of our kids, so I can move on from there. So, Because they're older and I can go, I can now blame other parents for doing exactly what we did as parents because we wanted the best for our kids. The problem is, is our own kids 
need to explore their own power in order to become a healthy adult. Thirdly, is that individuation means I need to believe that somebody cares for me. Identity, autonomy, belonging, that's when you're an adult. How many of you would say you're an adult at 18? Raise your hand. Seriously, none of you? Let's start this then. How many of you would say 16? Really? How many of you are going to let your kids have a driver's license at 16? Raise your hand. Be honest. Don't lie to me. You are too. Thank you. Okay. They're not an adult at 16 or even 18. Nobody voted for that. But let's give them the greatest opportunity for causing the most destruction at 16. Really smart thinking on our part collectively. There's no way to turn the clock back on teenagers driving at 16 years old in this country. Almost impossible. There's been limits on how many kids in a car. Wink, wink. And some of those kind of things. But you're not an adult at 16. Some say you are because you get a license. You're adult at 18. Most of you said no, but you get to vote. You get to go in the military. You get to use tobacco products in Kansas and Missouri, right? Tobacco products, legally? 18? Uh, trust me, you're, you'll figure this out when your kids are not. The front row knows. When is it? 18. <laughs> sure, okay. I'm from Washington State. They don't use tobacco either. <laughs> it's really funny if you have any idea what's happened politically. Okay. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> but it, it, tobacco products in, in Kansas and Missouri, unless you play baseball, then it's seven, okay? Uh, how many of you say you're an adult at 21? Oh, we got a few of you. Okay, 21. Front rower? You, you said 21? How old's your oldest? He's 22. <laughs> you still voted, though, but you'll think about it on the way home and go, ah. uh, Interesting, 21. Why? Because you can, you, you can drink alcohol unless you're in a fraternity. And uh, so, you know, 21, great. And in Washington and Colorado, that's when you're allowed to smoke pot at church, which is incredible, legally. It, you know, there are Methodists, you know, and Lutherans and evangelical free people out there. And, uh, but to Hertz, it's what? 25, yeah. But to the airline industry, it's two. Right? So is, uh, when's a kid an adult? Two? 16, 18, 21, 25. See, we believe adulthood is chronological. Most of you will de facto treat your kids as if adulthood is 18, especially Christians. We love saying, well, you know what? We say it with a smile. God's given me authority over you. That authority thing's been taken off because there's some speakers and writers that have talked about that that's the primary job of parents is exert authority. It is the dumbest way for parents to think about parenting. The more you power you exert, the less power your kid will experience. Our job is not to control them. Our job is to help them to develop into healthy agents of the kingdom of God. Which means we give them as much power as they possibly can handle. And we realize that failure is not the end game. Failure is, according to Richard Rohr, a trampoline into greater things. As a child and an adolescent and an emerging adult, failure is a gift as long as there's adults to help them interpret the reason for failure and the trajectory of failure. But what's really fascinating is through the whole process, individuation, a kid needs to know that somebody cares about them or they're going to be too scared to try anything. And how, how we interpret caring is you get to be on the team. All of us know what it's like to have, for example, when it rains, I know in Kansas City it rains three, four times a day, a year. And, uh, you, you know, you stay inside and you have a spelling bee or something. You have some kind of competition. You have two coaches or you're going to pick up basketball and you have two people that pick teams. 
And we think that belonging is you get to be on my team. Yay. That's not the psychosocial developmental aspect of belonging. Your kid not wants to, doesn't want to be picked for your team. Your kid wants to be cherished. Your kid longs to be picked first. Longs for you to fight for them and to know that somebody's in their corner. Not for what they do, how they perform, how they conform, for how they look, how they act, whether or not they kick an extra point. All that is ultimately meaningless. But that you actually cherish and will fight for them because they belong to you. They're yours. Identity, autonomy, and belonging, as they settle in these things, that's when you are an adult. Now, that said, let me just give you a little... I, yeah, thank you. There's a clock right up there, too. I, that's so great, as opposed to... Sorry, I was just joking. Ready for this? This is even fun. When does it start? Adolescence. It begins when you hit puberty, on average. Puberty, your body changes. You know, you get a bunch of hair. You look kind of weird. And then until you finally land as an adult, identity, autonomy, and belonging, until you hit the pinnacle and become a high school football coach, a senior pastor, or CEO, okay? Uh, what's interesting about this particular one is uh, this is how it's looked. Before 1900, when we first identified adolescence, and really started to realize what it is. Average age of is puberty. It's not just male puberty. It's female puberty. So all boys and girls start asking the questions about identity, autonomy, and belonging at the average age of female puberty, and that's getting younger and younger. So here's what happens. Before 1900, average age of puberty is 14 to 15, and you kind of landed as an adult at around 16, about two-year period. Somewhere between the 70s and 80s, the average age of, of female first menses was, went below 13 in the U.S., if you are uh, 35 and older, you probably relatively individuated at about 20 years old. If you're 50 and older, probably around 18 or 19, where you kind of knew who you were, you kind of had a sense that I, I'm an agent, I got some power, and that there's some people that could care about me, I'm ready to enter adulthood. That's what being an adult is. You can't be a mature adult without landing in those three areas. You kind of know who you are, you live from the inside out. You kind of believe that you've got something to bring to the table and that you're worthy of inclusion in an adult community and you believe that people will allow you to be in relationship. Identity, autonomy, and belonging. You probably know some adults that haven't quite landed. And if you haven't quite landed, you, you have a difficulty in marriage, in friendship, in jobs, neighborhood. Usually you're on a church board or you're a senior pastor, but not here at this church, so that's a whole different thing. Um, so it's about a five, seven-year period. If you are 35 and older, which I'm looking around, most of you are. Some of you are a little bit older than that, or you've lived a very hard life. That's a whole, it's up to you chronologically. Where we now today is the average age of female puberty is, depending on who you read and who you talk to, somewhere between 11 and 12 for most kids. Second-generation Asian Americans are about 12.2. Uh, immigrant Latino, Latinas are about 11.2 a whole year period. Um, uh, African Americans in the urban centers are about 11.4. South American wealthy kids are about 10.9. It's related to its environment, not just hormones and the food supply. Even those of you that are doctors, I, I know the medical field well. I know how much training you got in medical school and how you were trained to read social science journals. So the AMA loves to say it's still 12 and holding at 12. That's simply not true. In fact, girls that report a close relationship with their dad hit their first menses at 
on average, six months later than girls that report an estranged relationship from their dad. Do you get that? Girls that report a close relationship with their fathers, on average, are six months later in their first menses than girls that report a close relationship to their father. In other words, the environment has a huge impact over the female hormonal cycle. Women have known this for a long time. Guys, I didn't learn this until my daughter hit 13. And all of a sudden, I started realizing, I'm traveling a lot from about the 15th to the 20th every month. I, I, why is that on my calendar? Because something's going on at home. Honey, what do you think? And they, my daughter and my wife kind of look at each other, and they explain to me female biology, even though I got a PhD in this stuff. I didn't, I wish somebody told me this in college. You know, guys from the 7th to the 11th, this sorority house, don't come in. Go fishing. Do whatever you want to do. <laughs> Still, some of the men are going, what is he talking about? Ask your wives later. They'll explain it to you. Uh, we went out to dinner with this couple. And, and what's in, this is getting younger and younger. This is, this is amazing how men and women see this particular one. Is what's interesting is we're excited to be with them. Hadn't seen them for a while. The woman is kind of excited, agitated. We sit outside, Tides Tavern, Gig Harbor, Washington, where we live. Mount Rainier in the background, sailboats right there, tied up to their dock. And we're hungry. We're going to order. It's beautiful. And she goes, before we order, guess what happened to Susie this week? Yes. And she and my wife start talking about it and sharing and yay. And what'd you do? And how'd you celebrate her interest in the womanhood in front of me and this other guy? And he's looking at me and he's going, just shut up, Jack. Don't say anything. Just shut up. <laughs> Kick him in the table. Just, we'll order soon. Just don't say Jack. Okay. And I'm saying, I've been a guy most of my life. <laughs> Not one time have I ever been in mixed company and some guy says, hey, everybody, before we order, guess what happened to Timmy this week? Not one time has that ever... You realize what I'm talking about? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. This is getting younger, and if you do the math, by the year 2034, we got to do something about this. Girls are going to, this is serious. Girls are going to be born pregnant. we got to do something. This is going. But that's when it starts. Fifth or sixth grade is you'll notice a change in your kids, both boys and girls, all together. My kid's a late bloomer. They may be a late bloomer physiologically, but psychosocially, all kids line up because it's environmental and the social relationships. When are you an adult? In this culture, this is not chap, this is all scholars. Women, mid to late 20s is when they finally individuate today. For men, mid to late 50s. That sucker goes on and on and on. Identity, autonomy, belonging. Now that said, this I showed last night, those of you who are here, if you remember this, this is what life looks like now is this is called early adolescence, where you have the body of a child, but the brain of adult. The brain moves from concrete to abstract, 14 or 15 years old. It's called early adolescence. So your 12 and 13 or 14-year-old still has the brain of a child as they are thrust into an adult-like system known as middle school. It, the stupidest thing we did was to, to, to get rid of the primary school being first to eighth grade and instituting first the junior high and then the middle school. It's not based on good developmental literature. Even though many educational journals and scholars love to say it's a wonderful thing and it's appropriate, nobody else that studies development believes that. They do, the middle school is not designed especially for 11 to 14-year-old males. Girls can't adapt because they're most sociologically they're in tune. Boys can't. Then this is roughly high school, right? This is called... Mid-adolescence, it's stretched so much. And it's, so this is early adolescent, life is very concrete. This is late adolescence or emerging adulthood. 
that takes longer now. That's where you're very abstract but not ready to really enter into identity, autonomy, and belonging. What happens from 14 to 20? This is called egocentric, egocentric abstraction. Egocentric abstraction means I'm aware at 15 or so that I impact others by my behavior and attitude, but I don't care. The front row gets this. The rest of you are going, seriously? I thought when they're 16, they're almost adults. No. In fact, they're right in the middle of this tightrope. By definition, you have to go through adolescence alone. You have the support of the family system on the, on the left pole. You have the support of the community on the right. And that's what every kid faces. That said, response of adults, a macro look at the world of kids. This is where we're going to pick it up after a break. That kind of lays the foundation where we're going. But what we're going to talk about is basically this. Summarizing this, I saw this this sign in a restaurant not that long ago. Teenagers tired of being hassled by your stupid parents. Act now. Move out, get a job, pay your own bills while you still know everything. <laughs> they had a high school kid, probably around 16, 17, about 6'2", acne, hair unkempt, slouching, oh, 115 pounds. Not very attractive kid, not very athletic, just there standing there. Uh, a beautiful 7th, 8th grade daughter there with the dad's arm around her, and the mom hits the boy and points at the sign and says, hey, look at you. See, you got a long way to go. You better start thinking about the future. And I'm sitting there looking at this kid going, and you think that's preparing him to be an agent in the very precarious, dangerous world by just hammering him with all the expectations that he better figure out on his own? Perhaps how we treat our kids growing up and how we think about what growing up is and what does it mean to be an adult will influence who they become when they hit 15, 18, 22, 27, 35. Let's take a break for about 10 minutes. Do you want to say anything? Or... Go ahead, Chris. We're going to take a 10-minute break and... Uh to maybe splash some cold water on your face, grab a paper bag hyper, to help stop hyperventilating a little bit. A lot of great stuff, really good, hopeful stuff still coming. We're going to have a number on the screen during this next session and for a Q&A session coming up at the end. So you can text in questions because hopefully this is provoking a lot of questions you want to ask and we're going to give an opportunity to clarify confusion as well because... I've even got some of that still after the session. But 10-minute break. There's more food. Get some coffee, water it's on the, the face, and then we'll start. Wonderful time. Lives always makes me think of Jesus, doesn't he? Just kind of. I think more of Herod when I think of Burl Lives. I don't know about you guys. We ready? Excited? Fired up? Okay, hallway. Chris, come on, buddy. Look, I love him. You guys realize what a gift you have in Chris Burnout? I hope you realize. He is. Three of you do. That's very exciting. That's great. <laughs> you guys have an amazing youth staff here. I'm telling you. Every single one of them is. And children's staff. I'm telling you. And they all need to go to Fuller and get their Doctor of Ministry degree. I'm just. Data, information, knowledge, wisdom. Okay, here we go. Uh, we're going we're gonna to be done at 11, between 11.13 and 11.17 and a half and have you guys, and we're going to do some Q&A through texting your questions. So the, the phone number for questions is still up on the side. Oh, that's, that is so techno slick. 
Way to go. I don't remember my passwords. I still have an Atari computer. So as parents, what we want to do is prepare our kids to face the world. And so what do we do? We give them opportunities and say, you're going to do awesome. You're going to do great. Go get them, Tiger. And that's really wonderful uh, until we recognize what we're not doing is building their sense of self. We're giving them opportunities but not building a sense of self. I love this. This is the first Little League team. Let me tell you what's basically happened. Uh, that guy's got the bat. Those of you that saw this last night, don't give it away, okay? Uh, thanks. This is, uh, that guy's got the bat, 1938. A farmer was worried about kids. He said, they don't understand the way we play together. Our national pastime. That's the way we play together. See, sport for all of time was about celebrating life. Competition was a subset of the joy of living together, which is the point of sport for all of time. So this guy wanted to teach these precious kids, boys and girls, 6 to 17. He's got the bat. She's got the ball. Look how she's smiling. They let that little boy wear a dress. They were very progressive back then. <laughs> Same line from last night. Yes, you guys. And it's because this guy cared about these kids. Now, you notice there's no uniforms, there's hardly any equipment. Most of them are really happy to be there. But the biggest thing I want you to notice is, besides boys and girls, no equipment, and no Susie's Cafe on their jer jerseys, there's no adult in the picture. Because the adults that are serving the developmental needs of kids don't matter. They don't need to receive anything in doing what is normally human for all of time. And that is, as I, we grow older, our primary task and calling in life, the concept of legacy, is we give of what we know and of ourselves and of our corporate story to younger generations. That's the point of growing up. We think legacy is money material. How come most adults, when their kids finally get out of high school, college, they finally get them paid off, they finally have their kids pay their own cell phone bill, 35, 40 years old, and then they go, in your church, I'm sure it's the same like every church, they go, man, I, I'm glad we have good youth ministry because I'm done with that stuff. No, you're not. You've just begun in terms of world history. The point of life was about legacy and to help kids develop into who they are because they pass on our story. Where are we now with you sports? This is kind of a parable of that. Keep your eye on the ball, Brandon. Come on, big fella. Base hit. Here we go now. Oh, that's a base hit. Nice job, Brandon. Nice job. Mike must be so proud of your son. He's having a great season. Oh, thanks, Kathy. But hey, hey, your son Jason, he's got a great arm. He's going to be on the, uh, we'll see him at Dodger Stadium soon. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Mike, I mean, Brandon is really stinging the ball this summer. Well, if his math scores were as high as his batting average, mm -hmm. I'd have a straight-A student. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Brandon, you don't want to get picked off. Get on the bag. You know, I haven't seen Heidi in a while. Will you make sure to say hello for me? I certainly will. Thanks. She's actually real busy with her career. Shopping. <laughs> I think my wife's in the same line of work. Oh. <laughs> no outs, Brandon. Get on the bag. So, Kathy, how's uh, the art gallery going? Pretty well, actually. We just started carrying this terrific sculptor from Costa Mesa. Oh. Get on the bag. Yeah, he works in iron and marble. Oh, wow. That sounds interesting. I, I love art myself. Get on the bag! <laughs> 
Well, we're having an exhibit this Wednesday. You should all pop by. Oh, okay. You know, my wife and I went to the L.A. County Museum of Art and saw the Van Gogh retrospective. Mm. Brandon! Get on the damn bag! His, uh, his early sketch work is, is really appealing. Hey, Brandon, uh, maybe you should listen to your dad and stay close to first base, partner. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, what I always tell my son Nathan, uh, just go out there and try to have fun, you know. Well, you know, having fun is the name of the game. Hey, son, you trying to make an ass of me? Get on the bag! Okay, that's enough. Thank you. You get the idea. When did we allow adults to shame kids for, for their performance in athletics? When, did, when was it okay for an adult to feel like their kid's performance was a reflection of them? And also, we actually have come to believe that motivating children and adolescents is best by shaming, manipulation, coercion, berating. However, anybody that has even a shred of knowledge of human development realizes this actually goes in the corporate world too, and I'll tell you about a conversation I had yesterday with somebody. Um, is that the more a child or an adolescent is, feels safe and is set free, by far their performance in athletics and academics will soar. Music, dance, drama, it doesn't matter. It's, it's the more they are set free, they're able to experience life from the inside out, and in that freedom, they will perform at the highest possible level that they can, given their training and abilities and experience but we actually think the opposite is true. We overcoach not only in youth sports, but we overcoach in life. There's a guy that was uh, speaking to MNU um, yesterday, and there was a dad that came with all these Nazarene youth pastors. That's the one guy in the back, business guy. And he clearly showed it by wearing a camel hair sport coat, which I pointed out several times during my talk, as I do. And afterwards, he came up and he goes, this is, this is so great, man. All the things that I took all these notes. He goes, and I'm, you know, I'm a businessman. I got a lot of people work for me. It's really interesting how you, parenting, you got to do one set of things. And the business world, you go a whole different set of things. And I go, actually, I, I actually teach leadership as well. And I, do a, I don't just do youth ministry or parenting or marriage. I, I do a lot with leadership and motivating people and how we relate to each other. And the best of the business leadership tells us that you want to have people be productive. They need to believe that you believe in them. They need to be set free to be fully themselves. And if they're not able to perform for that particular task, that is not about them if they truly are being led by being set free. So then our job as people in society is to help one another find the right fit for who we are in freedom. So it's a principle that is not just parenting. It's a principle across the board that the more we allow for the true reality of who we are to be expressed in safety and freedom, by far the more productive we are and the healthier we are, the better we are. And uh, he looked at me and go, really? And I, yeah, well, you can read Heifetz from Harvard. You can read Sample from USC. Uh, and you can read the best business book in the last 30 years is Max Dupree, Leadership as an Art. Uh, it, it's an amazingly good book. Good to great is fine, but it's still totally based on externals and performance. So that's for the people that are in business. Just to, th th This is not about just parenting kids strategically. This is about who we are as people as we grow up. M Max Dupree leadership is an art. <clears throat> this is what we know about successful kids. 
Denise Clark Pope, for example, Stanford University. Successful students learn to devise various strategies to stay ahead of their peers and to please those in power positions. Unsuccessful students, unsuccessful athletes, unsuccessful Christian kids, for a variety of reasons, are not as adept at playing the survival game. And we train our kids to be great survivalists and performers. So that said, even in the family, which is why we're here, is how are we fostering a healthy sense of individuation that spills over into their faith so that they can experience the God who calls him his own? And that's basically what we're going to be talking about as family. Why have things so changed so dramatically? Let's first look at that. It's because of what's called the loss of social capital. This concept was made popular by Robert Putnam, a sociologist from Harvard, in a book called Bowling Alone, another book that's very interesting. In Bowling Alone, what he basically talks about is the erosion of our commitment to living life together. And he, he uses the term social capital, which has been around for a long time. He didn't invent it. But it's the idea of, of uh, capital, like financial capital is, is financial resources. Social capital are, is the human resources. It's people in our lives who care when they don't have to. They don't have a reason to invest in us. They simply invest in us because they know that that's what life is about. And that's how every single human being that's ever walked the face of the earth saw life, is the point of life was to live and sing and dance your story, your meta-narrative. Meta, grand, overarching, all-encompassing narrative, the shoeboxes. It's I, I take my shoeboxes, and you take your shoeboxes, Holly, and we take Chris's, and we put them together. That's our common story. That's our meta-narrative. And... The result of ultimately the ethic of competition individualism is the erosion of metanarrative. It's, this, I know it's complicated, but this is the seeds of what's called deconstructionism, the beginning of what we call postmodernism, which is not true. Nobody's postmodern. You all stop at red lights. What we are is depressed modernists. We believe that there's a cause and effect, but we realize we can't figure out how to push the right switches, so we're depressed about it. And that's what happened in the 60s through the 90s was we realized it's, people called it postmodern because they didn't know what else to call it. We're still modernists because we believe in cause and effect. We believe in doing the right thing. We believe in pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. We believe if you work hard, then you'll have good outcomes. We believe that people on welfare only on welfare because they're lazy sons of guns as opposed to systemic realities that they really have very little choices in comparison to others. And, the, and what's happened to deconstruction is we ended up saying, listen, I'm on my own. We're depressed modernists. We've become atomized, where life is about crashing into each other, trying to figure out how to make alliances and build networks so I get a sense of place and self. Our kids are growing up with nobody in their life that knows their story, that knows their name, except that it's on some sheet that a teacher evaluates or a coach decides they're going to be first or second string. Or whether a small group leader loves them deeply. This is what I talk to our, your leaders about at this church. I care about your kid deeply, but I don't really text them ever unless they don't show up for three weeks. Then I'll text them and go, where you been? That's not social capital. That's performance. I love you when and if you jump through my boxes because I am atomized and I need to make sure you perform for me. That happens even in the family. Forty years ago, if you ask a person 
Benny Pierce comes to mind, the best football coach in Northern California's history, Saratoga High School. You ask Benny Pierce in the 70s, what do you do for a living? I build young men. I happen to do it by having them play football. And they were, for years, the powerhouse in Northern California until the private schools began to recruit and just became many colleges. It's a public school. You ask a high school football coach today, what do you do? I coach football. Do you see the difference? When you coach football, then young men are tools for you to coach football. When you teach math, as opposed to teaching young people and building young people, you, the kids are tools to build the test score so you keep your job. And that's what the loss of social capital is. 40 years ago, a high school teacher who's 25 and in a teaching because I love kids, so I'm going to use the tool of teaching to love kids. This is so fun. It's my career. And so three girls from the JV volleyball team go, hey, come to our game today. She goes, of course I'll come to your game. That's the reason I do this. woo -hoo. And JV volleyball was like a death sentence in those days <laughs> because that's when volleyball, you couldn't get a point unless you served. So a girls' JV volleyball game in the 60s took three days. <laughs> Net, <clears throat> Net, rotate, okay, go. Yay. Okay, Net. And they didn't have cell phones then, so they couldn't text and check up on their emails. They'd just sit there and watch these girls rotate. Until after the game, then the girls would run up into the stands and they wouldn't talk about performance of volleyball because it's fun, we're playing volleyball. Now we're going to go sit and we're going to talk. Yay, we're going to be together. And this 25-year-old would sit in the stands with these kids for an hour and talk about life and guys and heartbreak and hope and dreams because she was in it for social capital. Today, we not only have no space in our lives to offer social capital to kids, we have legislated against it because we're so afraid. We've even legislated against touch. Human touch is essential for healthy development. And yet we, we can't touch each other. We are so afraid. We are so broken. We have learned how to use each other so well. We're so atomized. And our kids are growing up not only with nobody knowing their names, nobody looking them in the eye. Nobody asking their opinion. And nobody touching them. Your kid needs to be touched. Your kid doesn't, if she's a girl, she doesn't just need to be touched by a woman. She needs to be touched by a man that she can trust who does not objectify her as an object for his own sense of loneliness and self. She needs to have a strong man in her life who's healthy that can convince her that as a woman, she's a child of God with incredible agency and power. And if she ends up getting married, she's not just somebody else's servant for his ability to make his mark. She is a co-agent of the kingdom with him. Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another out of your reverence for Christ. Don't lead your daughters into submitting to husbands without first leading them in, first, in Ephesians 5.21. Teach your men not to just love their wives as Christ loved the church. Yes, what that meant is out of mutual submission, then your job is to lift your wife up to the sky. Teach your daughters to have power. Teach your daughters to have voice. Teach your daughters to believe in who they are, not just as a body, but a human being in the image of God. Same thing with your sons. But see, nobody's telling anybody that. And for sure, nobody's treating kids that way, even if we use the rhetoric. See, used to be, we used to believe all kids belong to all of us. The beautiful, wonderful outcome of individualism 
and, and fragmentation and the economic injustices in our country, especially the last 30, 40 years, is that we now are so polarized that we actually believe that kids only belong to parents, not belong to us. But that only people that believe that are those that have the resources to be able to buy their kids' friends. So we hire youth directors. Youth directors' job is not to love your kids instead of other people. Youth directors' job is to mobilize the body of Christ to love your kids as a community. Now, your youth pastors know this. So your children people. It's getting the church to figure out that this is not buying people to love kids. It's actually hiring people to mobilize us to actually get back to what it means to be human together in the name of Christ. Adults used to see their primary role as facilitating children becoming adults. All people. The point of life for all of time in every culture was to pass on the meta-narrative. Somehow the ethics in the Middle Ages, without going into great detail, shifted to being about the ethic of, com of competition and individualism. That the point of life was to wake up and make a better product than the person down the street so I feel better about myself. Because the more I can perform in comparison to others, then I feel better about myself. But God did not create us that way. We are created and long for the blessing of chosenness. Henry Nowen writes in a great book, Life of the Beloved, deep friendship is a calling forth of one another's chosenness. That God in his particularity chooses individuals, yes, but the gospel is not that he chooses us as individuals. He calls us to come together as his children. He proclaims us to be his children. He uses the word adoption in the scriptures. Five times the apostle Paul uses the word once for the Jews that God has adopted them. Once you were disobedient, rebellious people fighting each other and hating each other, hurting each other, and I now call you my children. You belong to my family. You've been adopted, Jews, but then four other times he uses the word adopted with all the rights and privileges of a natural-born child where the Gentiles, the non-Jews, were also adopted into God's family because God created us to experience his life one to another. Adults all saw kids as assets then. Because as assets, they passed on the story, not because they could contribute to my own agenda. See, your kid is a powerful agent, but not for your agenda. Because your agenda and my agenda doesn't matter. The two, two of the biggest industries in this country, besides the military complex and the media complex, is sports and pornography. And they both appeal to the same process in our brains, the release of dopamine. Random reward. That's what sports is about. That's what fantasy sports is about. That's what gambling is about. And that's what pornography is about, is I am so lonely and disconnected. I don't know how to have relationships. Life is so atomized. So therefore, I have to have some way to release what naturally occurs in the context of community, the release of dopamine. The problem is random reward, sports, pornography, uh, performance, is shots of dopamine that for a season I feel good. If, if K-State finally wins a game, way to go, wearing a shirt. I'm a Notre Dame fan, so it's much worse for me, okay? But as a Chief fan, this is a perfect example for us. I've been a Chief fan my whole life. And it is one of the most depressing. It's kind of like being a Cubs fan, isn't it? You get sort of close. I know, sorry, Paul. And it's not anywhere near as bad as being a Cubs fan, frankly. Okay. Yes, it is. You get so close, but then Joe Montana gets tackled in Buffalo. Some of you remember that. In fact, you remember that now and you're depressed because I brought it up. <laughs> Travis Kelsey, it wasn't a fumble. Monday morning, it wasn't a fumble. Do you even know what I'm talking about? Yeah. 
Thank you. All right, good. Adults, therefore, used to be there for kids. See, as a parent, your job is to be there for your kids. It's to provide them social capital and to bring others into their lives who are going to reinforce social capital. That's kind of the point. What's happened is systemic abandonment. This is what I write about in the book Hurt and Hurt 2.0, is that the systems that were designed like sports to offer social capital to kids so they could become human and inner society to find satisfaction and depth and health in the context of human relationships, serving one another, where it's a constant drip of dopamine as God created us as opposed to an occasional shot to heal our isolation and loneliness. It's, it's, not, it's not systematic. Nobody intentionally decided to hurt your kids. It's the systems. People are great, most of them. Most coaches, most teachers, most neighbors, most people in ministry are wonderful and mean well. But see, we may mean well, but we still treat kids as objects for our own sense of self and meaning. It's systemic abandonment. And the cost of this is high for our kids. This is not high. I started my literary career as a cover model. That's where it actually began. I don't know. Some of you may have recognized me from the early years. There's posters all over bathrooms in North Dakota. That's really just kind of frightening. But in, in this book, that's what I do is I highlight. I didn't want to call it Hurt. Terrible name for a book because who's going to buy a case of Hurt for their family at Christmas, you know? Depending on your family, you know, oh, that's a good name. Let's give that to Uncle Joe. Um, but that's what every kid's Hurt. And if you're, you go, oh, my oldest kid's 12 or 10, your six-year-old has learned that there's social hierarchy in kindergarten, that there's some kids who are losers and they're only five years old. And those, six, those five-year-olds know it, and the elite kids know it, and they know I'm going to do everything I can to claw to the top because that's all that life's about. And they're five and six years old. By the time they're eight, if they love to dance, they have to try out for the ultimate oxymoron. You know an oxymoron is two words that don't work together, like jumbo shrimp, okay, military, you know, intelligence, okay, uh, United Methodist, okay, uh, <laughs> Oakland Raiders, commitment to excellence, these would be some of the things that would be called oxymorons. I hope that's true until tomorrow. Uh, ultimate oxymoron is competitive dancing. We've even made cooking competitive. Hell's Kitchen. The whole Fox network is based on destroying human relationships. If you look at the shows, almost all of them. American Idol, The Voice, love it. You're only as any good if you're first. Second place is first loser, Jerry Seinfeld. Wonderful. That's the world our kids have grown up in. And therefore, by the time they hit high school and they become more aware, and I want to say this again, egocentric abstraction, I said it too fast because I was trying to finish because I saw the sign. Okay, I had to get done. But here's the deal. Egocentric abstraction, mid-adolescence is this. Um, I'm aware that I impact others by my behavior and my attitudes. I impact others by how I live my life. I'm aware of that by the time I hit 15. But I don't care the reason they don't care and the reason they're egocentric is because they're under incredible stress of performing for all these agendas. Identity, who am I? Autonomy, do I have any power? Belonging, who cares about me unless I perform for their agenda? So we come home, and th this is me as a dad, you guys. I'm not blaming, I'm not hammering you. I'm These seminars I do, these are about me. You get to listen in as long as there's a check written. 
okay? Or I get to go to the Chief game on the field. Way to go, Chris. Good job for you guys. Am I excited? Up until about 2.30. I'm really excited until about 2.30 tomorrow. Then we'll see what happens. But dopamine, remember? Um, is with my own kids. I'd come home from a trip, be gone three days, telling people how to love their kids. Awesome. Come in. Hi, love you, love you. Hey, Jimmy. Hey, how did, how did the tryout for cheerleader go? You made it. Awesome. You're going to be a great cheerleader. Oh, how'd you, well, did you start last week? No, you didn't start. Oh, what happened? How was practice? Oh, did you yell at the coach again? Have you cleaned your room? Have you, have you studied? Uh, boy, you got, you got a B minus, you know, and you, you said that you were going to work harder. And I've actually seen you kind of screwing around a little bit more. Love you a lot. You're awesome. You're a fantastic kid. Now get those grades up. You're not living to your potential. Have you cleaned your room? You're treating mom kind of poorly. Why didn't you make the team? Why aren't you first place? Why aren't you a starter? What's the matter with those people? Don't they realize that you're beautiful and you're a great cheerleader? How come you didn't make the cheerleader squad? You've been cheering your whole life, and now you're in freshman, and nobody voted for you? That's okay, honey. You're going to be great. You can be whatever you want to be. You're going to change the world, even though the world tells you you're a failure and nobody cares. Welcome to the world of your kids, whether they're six years old or they're 18. By the time they're 17, 18, they know it. This is the world I have entered. And then we say, get into, especially in this kind of community, get into the right college. Let me reveal something to you if you haven't read the right materials. I know people tell you don't read things like the New York Times, but they're the last, they're the last group of actual journalists almost left in the nation besides Al Jazeera, or however you say that. Is that the... Al Jazeera, same thing. Well, Jazeera is the Greek version of that. See, I'm a scholar. <laughs> Thank you for laughing. That's such a goofball thing. Um, you know what? Your kid has a far better chance of success in life and business if they do really well at a mid-level college, especially a smaller one, than if they go to Harvard or Stanford and, and one of the elite schools and they do pretty good. Because the kids that go to the elite schools and the ones that actually rise to the surface of the elite schools have been told their whole life they're elite and they have not developed autonomy for the most part and they're a shell of a human being and they hit 25 and they become the HBO series girls. Have you ever seen that? It's, it's kind of shaky. I mean, if I started Presbyterians or Lutherans, it wouldn't be a problem to mention it, but you guys may have to go across the state line in order to be able to actually watch that HBO special, girls. It's dirty. All right, it's kind of like the Old Testament. But it's real, because you know what? Just the kind of college kid goes to is the kind of college that's going to help them to thrive in identity, autonomy, and belonging. Because you guys know, in business, after you get your first job, it's all about can you look somebody in the eye and you're trustworthy, and can you write and can you communicate? It has nothing to do with where you go to school. Oh, you build networks. You build networks from 22 to 30, not 18 to 22. So what we think about our kids' future is building them sense of self and the confidence that they're an agent. And God has them in the palm of his hands, and they are going to participate in God changing the world. They don't have to worry about changing the world. They live in freedom and health and healthy relationships. That's the goal. So that's going to get us. What do we do? It's your job, parents. You know what? It's not your job. Some of you have heard that Deuteronomy 6 is to parents. Deuteronomy 6 is a great passage that says, Here's who I am, the Lord your God. Love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Okay, now, Deuteronomy 6. Teach your children, Israel. Teach them about my commandments and decrees. When you go to bed at night, when you wake up in the morning, when you eat your meals, when you walk on the road, all the time, teach your children. And 
Almost everybody in conservative evangelicalism says, that's the parents. Parents, you're the disciple of your kids. You're responsible for your kids' faith. It's your job to raise your kids. It's perfect for a slice of American political climate. However, it's not good interpretation. No Hebrew thought that way. No ancient people group saw any decree from a deity as being, parents, you and your kids, you're on your own. Good luck. Go get them. You are not on your own because that is to Israel. Because every kid in the, commun- in, the, in the family, in the extended family, in the tribe, in the clan, in the nation, every one of those kids belong to every adult. Israelite, teach your children. So your kids are your kids. And they're your kids. And they're Chris's kids. And Chris has a kid, Grace, from China. She belongs to you. You have to wake up in the middle of the night praying for Grace. Because grace is adopted. Praise the Lord. Do you see how God designed it? And that's what Israel knew. Israel, teach your children, all your children. You're not alone. That's why you have the church. See, the point of the church is to recognize how broken and ordinary we are. The point of the church is not to maintain individualism, competition, elitism, and atomization. The point of the church is we are allowed to come together before Christ and to be clean to be set free, and then to be participants in setting one another free. What if the church was actually the church? That's what we're going to be talking about now for the next 15 minutes. What does every kid need? Type A's, here you go. I was raised by an IBM guy. That's why we moved. It stands for I've been moved, right? Then we moved to California when I was 16 because my dad quit IBM, met an engineer, and they started a company that invented RAM. Some of you know what RAM is. Not the Dodge truck, Okay. And uh, started kind of one of the founders of Silicon Valley and all that. So I was raised in this world where, okay, type A, get at it. What really matters? Here's what really matters. First, every adolescent needs family, safety, and stability. Is your place a place of blessing, kindness, and safety for your kid? Are you more concerned with the condition of their room than the condition of their heart? Are you caring so much about the sprint and whether or not they wear a church a hat into church when they're 10 years old? Or do you care more about the long-term trajectory of who they are as an agent in the kingdom of God? Parenting is a marathon. It's actually a triathlon. It's not a sprint. There's seasons of running, seasons of biking, seasons of swimming. Season, it's up and down. It's over and out. There's failure. There's pain. There's loneliness. There's argument. There's tears. But it's the crucible where adults need to be adults to make sure it's safe and stable. So when a kid walks in the home, at least they know they're safe. This is why the primary metaphor in the Bible about who we are is the word family. When you give your life to Christ, it is not a solitary decision. You are accepting the fact that he has adopted you and his family, and these people in the church are your siblings, whether they're six or they're 86. That's your big brother or sister. That's your little brother or sister. You belong to each other. We belong to one another in the family of God, not just your church, but the church in downtown Kansas City, Missouri. That according to the scriptures, the family of Michael Brown is your family, your sibling. If your little brother was laying on the street for four hours, you would get in the plane, you'd get in the car, you would call somebody, and you would get that body covered and moved. You would. If that's your brother. 
If that cop was the one that shot the kid and he was your brother, you would do everything you can to defend his honor until they figured out what really happened because you care about the cop and his family. In other words, why can't Christians recognize that God is calling us to be for one another instead of participate in a cultural fragmentation, atomization, and destructive polarization? We are in this together. You need each other, you guys. And this is a pretty large church with four different, five different Expressions, you love to use the word campus. I still theologically have no idea what that means. But see, the larger you get, the more difficult it is. There's hundreds of parents in this church that have not heard a word of this and don't get it. They just know, I am so scared for my own kids. But see, somehow you got to figure out, how do we get in this together? Family, safety, and stability. Secondly, is um, they need attachment relationships. We need to allow them and encourage them to be in relationships with other adults. I've used the term five to one, and for a long time now, of that it takes at least five non-parental adults to help a kid to be healthy, who know their name, who know their story, who value their voice, five to one, and they need a robust community beyond those deep attached relationships. See, family safety and stability attachment relationships, and a robust community where they are part of this family of God in order to be set free. Content of the gospel is far less important than the environment in which they grow up in. Content of the gospel is far less important than the actual environment. Content that takes root, that's transformative, is discovered in safe and trusting community. Content that takes root and transformative takes place in the context of community. Family devotions are at best neutral and at worst destructive to your kid's devotion, to your kid's future faith. Do you know this? Almost every Christian parenting book says, go have family devotions, they're great. No, family devotions can be incredibly destructive because kids usually hate them, and so do parents. They are forced spirituality when the actual spirituality that makes a difference is whether or not you leave church and you make a racist comment about a driver next to you. Because then your kid's 19 years old and they go, ah, my parents love Jesus, they say, but they're racist. I can't love a God like that. So roughly 50% of kids who are in elite Christian churches who stick around through their senior year and say they love God, by the time that they're 19 or 20, they have left the faith. 50% of them. Most leave between 9th and 11th grade. So it's who we are in community, whether or not you give this to your kid, that matters far more than the actual content. So basically, here's what we're talking, what we're learning about lifelong faith is family support and stability. The only thing we know is, Chris mentioned this, the only thing the Bible teaches about parenting are two and their negatives and their dads. Mom's got to be careful too. Don't embitter, don't exasperate. Embitter, slow drip of bitterness by how we treat them. Exasperation, pushing emotional buttons. Okay, those are my two spiritual gifts like most of the dads in the room. <laughs> I was great at, and still I got to watch myself. 33, 30, and 26, and I still got to watch myself when I'm bittering and exasperating my kids. Dee's better because she's a therapist because she, she avoids these two vocationally. But she's had her moments, you know, to be honest. During, during childhood and all the way through the lifespan, Paul uses the metaphor of being a mother, a nursing mother, where he says, we loved you so much, we were gentle among you who love God. And then when they move along the tightrope, you can't get on the tightrope. Helicopter parenting 
is where you're hovering above the tightrope. You can't do that. The, the rotors throw your kid off. You need to stand below the You know, our job is to provide a tr uh, kind of a safety net to stand below. There's helicopter parents. There's snowplow parents that try to clear all the obstacles out of the way of your kids. The snowplow parent, you know, we think we can prepare the road for the child. You can't. You got to prepare the child for the road. And then the worst is the stealth fighter bomber parents. Most of them don't come to stuff like this. They're the ones that come out of nowhere. You can't even hear them. They don't even know they're there until they're gone, kind of like the Rose Parade. And they come in, they just drop napalm, and they just destroy lives everywhere they go, and then they're gone. Uh, some of us, are, we've met stealth fighter bomber parents. If you ever coached Little League, you've always had a few of those, okay, or taught school. But even helicopter parenting, meanwhile, no, our, our job is, Paul says, like a father, paternal attachment. Like a father, we're there to comfort, encourage, and urge you as, to live lives where they've got to encourage you as a fan. That, see, it's a father's role to be encouraging, comforting, and urging with positive support. Not to hammer, not to coerce, not to shame, but to comfort and encourage along the path. And a mom's role, like a mother, we are there to be safety and gentle. Here's the problem. Is Paul, the apostle, who is male, is using both of these similes. They're not even metaphors. And so it's a maternal style as gentleness that men and women have to participate in. It's a paternal style that moms and dads and men and women have to participate in. So single moms are required to be paternal in how they love their kid with comfort, encouragement. See, moms and dads, men and women, need to give both of these things to all kids. That's what they need with the trajectory of community. That's basically how it works. There's always holes in our net. So you're not going to be a good enough parent. I hate to say it to you. Has anybody not figured that out yet? There's not a one of you that's going to be perfect at this. You're going to have holes in your safety net. So that's why you hire youth pastors who are so great. That's why you hire children's workers. You hire people to help you, this kind of cloud of support when there's holes in your family. So it's either the, the professional coach, teacher, youth pastor, small group leader, program, or it's the parents. And we can't rely on anybody else because we're atomized. But the reality is those programs are just a cloud of witnesses, a whole bunch of people. Here's what your kids need, ultimately, social capital from a lot of folks. I call it Project 51, Project 5-1. There's actually a city in the Northwest that has gotten hold of this. And a couple of weeks ago, I don't know if you remember John Kitna. He's 18-year veteran backup quarterback. He's kind of the perpetual Jimmy Clausen. I don't know if you ever heard of him. Or Chase Daniels, I guess. Um, but uh, so Kitna was part of this. He's gone back to Tacoma to coach high school football and to teach math. He could do anything. He's 18 years in the NFL. He's got a lot of dough. He's made you know, four or $5,000 over the last 18 years. Uh, and so Project 51 is a whole community decided we're going to go after kids. It wasn't theological. It was just developmental family, friend, teacher, coach. In other words, invite people into your kids' lives. Now you need a type A in the last five minutes. What do you actually do? And by the way, if you want to see these, okay, these are going to be on my website. And I will have some of these slides on the website pretty soon, and you can click and look at those things. And it's cheesy. I hate it. But I, we got a little board of a nonprofit we're part of. And they go, use your name, you goofball. I don't want to use my name. It's weird to have calm after your name. But they go, people don't remember. Shut up. Stop it. Okay, so it's chapclark.com. I'm embarrassed by it, but that's where you can find it. So you don't have to worry. If a lot of you are taking notes or taking pictures. Um, 
Here's a, here's a real list for you, five things. How do you be a parent? First, your default is understanding. Understand that your kid's journey. I've talked about that ad nauseum. You get it. You got no excuse from now on. If you're, if you're here as a, and you're married and your spouse is not here, this is going to be, you're going to have them watch this with the same gender. So if you're a woman here and your husband's not here, you need to have him watch this with other guys. So you're not actually, honey, look at this. Oh, my gosh, you need to change. That's not exactly how this thing works, okay? Demonstrate compassion. It's wonderful to say I love my kid. Compassion comes from two words, kumpati in Latin. To suffer with is what compassion means. It's not enough to just say I love my kids. I'm doing the best for them. It's to demonstrate that I am willing to tie my boat next to theirs as they're struggling. Demonstrate compassion. Thirdly, oh, I forgot I had this. Forget it. Ignore that slide. Oh, ignore all these. Just turn to your neighbor and say, what was the most horrific thing in middle school? This is good. We just ran out of time. All right, here we go. Finishing up, I'm going to go to 11, 17 and a half. That's what I told you guys, right? Okay. How do you, what do you do to help your kid to actually grow? Here's some thoughts for you. Here's a list of five things of building a sense of voice in your kid. Create an atmosphere of dialogue from the time they're very young. We give speeches to our kids. We tell them what to think, how to think, what to believe, as opposed to get, eliciting from them their opinion. To watch a, a, a commercial together, put it on, praise God for DVRs. Put it on pause and go, did you guys see that commercial? Let's look at that again. Review the, rewind the commercial. What did that mean? What does that say to you? What do you think that's saying about women? What is that saying about guys? What is that thinking about relationships? Where's Jesus in the midst of that? Create a environment, atmosphere of dialogue so your kids, by the time they're in high school, they're already used to thinking about, reflecting on their own opinion of how life works. You'll be surprised at how much you learn from your kids. Secondly, encourage respectful questions, including disagreements. There's, there's this one YouTube video that went viral of a, a mom, that her, her kid's sitting at the breakfast table, and another kid says... Uh, Mom, Joey just said he doesn't believe in Jesus. He's an atheist. And the mom takes a pan and slams it down and starts screaming at the kids. And she throws something at the kid, literally. And she goes, no Christmas for you. You're not getting any, if you don't believe in Jesus, no Christmas for you. Awesome. Don't freak out when your kids say weird stuff. You'd much rather have them explore their thoughts in the safety and context of the five to one or your family than outside of that. Thirdly. Invite others in and explore them themes as they emerge. Um, don't just give the standard line that come out of your politics. But encourage serious, respectful, thoughtful dialogue. Read certain verses that talk about things like justice and mercy and the poor and equality and the parables of Jesus. If you want to do family devotions, use the parables of Jesus. And let your kids argue about what it means for modern-day Christians. Ooh, you talk about a scary conversation. Thirdly, fourthly, prepare your child for the road. You protect and resource them. You don't bail them out necessarily and entitle them. But your job until they land is you also are making careful little adjusted choices. Um, people say, by the time my kid's 18, they're on their own and they've got to learn, sink or swim. That's really stupid. 
in this world, they need resources all the way through their 20s and maybe into their 30s to figure out how am I going to navigate that? Doesn't mean entitle them, doesn't mean always bailing them out, doesn't mean keeping them from autonomy, but it does mean making sure that you are giving them opportunities to make good decisions and to grow. Coming home to live, 60% of college graduates will spend, on average, in the next five years, will live at home for some season of time. That's not a bad thing because life has changed, life is different, and lastly, and I'm done. Build an identity that is healthy, capable, and passionate. Okay? Oh, we got to probably hit that Microsoft computer so we can text questions in. Let's take about a minute or two. You can take it from here, okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's give Chap a hand. Thank you, guys. Um, so... The, the, the text in question uh, number is there, so if you haven't had a chance to text in any questions that you have uh, for Chap about his fashion sense or whatever it may be, uh, you can do that. Um, yeah, that's true. I'm, I'm better. But, um, but uh, yeah, so if you haven't yet done that, please, please do text in those questions, and uh, we have a few to kind of get started with. But um, first question, Chap, I think we have on the screen here is, uh, yeah, what will the score be tomorrow for the Chiefs and Raiders game? Any, any predictions? Jamal Charles, 21. <laughs> yeah. Oakland Raiders, 17. 17, okay. That's... Travis Kelsey, two fumbles. <laughs> One's real. Dwayne Bowe, one three-yard reception. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. Four drops. That's pretty good. That's pretty, pretty good. good. I hope I'm right. <laughs> Do you know where your seats will be? Will they, will they be somewhere? I have somewhere, no idea, Chris. Will they be somewhere over Dwayne Bow? You like that? You like that one? You know what? That you really free. are funny. That one's free. Reed. That one's free. You know what? He really is funny. <laughs> Thank I, you. Reed Thank is you, Chad. Reed, you're really good. Well, that's all the time we have. Thanks. Closing prayer. Um, Appreciate that. Okay, so first, first legitimate question. Um, how can we celebrate what our kids do, their gifts, talents, et cetera, uh, without communicating to them that our love and approval of them is predicated upon their performance. Okay, you, the way to do that is to remember in your brain that their gifts are an expression of them, so they are the gift. So they kick a great extra point, yay, but don't make a big deal about the kicking, the, being the kicker, or the A, or whatever happens that we praise. We praise that, but in our praising, we're recognizing that it's them as opposed to that gift that we're praising. An example of this is uh, I talked to this guy on Monday, 12-year-old daughter who's a singer on Frozen movie. He got a $3,000 check last week, and he's, they're saving it for us. Uh, he's so excited, and his daughter was kind of depressed, I think seventh grade, and, she, and he said, honey, when you sing, people's lives are changed, their hearts are just moved. And he goes, I was really trying to help her with social capital, that really, you know, her gift is changing the world. That's, that's great. The problem with that is what you're praising is something that is an expression of her and she could lose it. What happens if something happens to her voice? What about her brother and sister that don't sing on a movie? Where do they get their praise? How can you say your gift is an expression of you? So when you sing, your presence is the blessing and the gift and the joy that you bring to people. And your singing is a wonderful expression of you, but it's you that we honor and praise. Do you see the difference? It's very subtle, but you are basically building up the person. It's, 
not even praising character, although that's a good thing too. It's, it's continuing to remind them that they are an agent, that God has created them, they're his own people, and that who they are is, is what truly matters and who they're becoming. That's good. Thank you. One way, we were talking about this actually last night, and um, we were saying that, that we should make sure that, our, that our, our praise of our kids or our compliments of them are not only in those times when they're performing, but, but even in just kind of the, Absolutely the menial right. things in life. And so, how they deal with failure. Yeah. And, and when they're honest about their feelings and thoughts yeah. as opposed to just when they're performing. Right. Yeah. Good. So second question, um, what is the fine line between a kid exploring their power and defiance and how do we appropriately respond? As Good. Um, de- boy, defiance is a loaded word. What defiance means is I'm defying power. Um, it, it actually is a pejorative term that comes from somebody that holds the cards. So even the using the word defiance already sets this thing up as a lose for your kid. If you ever perceive them as being defiant you are seeing your relationship as a power play. So you've lost the game. You're done. As soon as you use the, con- the concept of defiant, my kid's defiant toward my authority. Well, you're realizing I got power. The kid's trying to push into my power, and I'm not supposed to let that happen. You got you to erase that entire conceptualization of this issue. Your job is to develop their power so that they can exert their power as agents of the kingdom of God in a positive way. And so your job is to boundary their power as opposed to have your power fight against their power. You do ne- they are never in the game of competing with you for power. Don't ever let yourself think that. First, they're not doing that. They don't want to do that. That's our problem. So if it looks like defiance... What it is, is wrestling with our own sense of self. So then we get back to the conversation is what is it that's really bothering you? What is it about this conversation or our decision that we're going to have a curfew on weekend nights? Or um, you can only smoke pot three days a week, you know, at home with your father. In Washington. Yeah, or Colorado. Um, in other words, what is it about this power play, this, this pushing back that looks like the finance, we're really struggling with each other, that's truly going on? Let's talk about the issue. Then we get to boundaries and an adult's responsibility to provide healthiest boundaries that we are trying to help protect you as you learn who you are and exert your power and remind them that power is a good thing. By the way, defiance is a good thing. The kingdom of God is constantly pushing in darkness. Read the Magnificat, you guys, this Christmas with your kids. Look what Mary says. That the strong and powerful will be torn down and the lowly will be lifted up. The kingdom of God is about defiance of the powers and principalities of the world. That's not just demons, gang. That's corporations. That's people with money and influence. Defiance is a positive thing when it's going against the kingdom of God. So you want your kid to actually get a little fire in their eyes. That's a good thing. Celebrate that. Tell them, I love your passion. Now, you're passionate about the wrong thing right now. Because what you want is not good for you, so let's talk about that. But I'm never going to deny you passion and power because I believe that that's going to take you somewhere in the long run. Isn't that fun? Look at you going, no, i got a seven-year-old. You ought to meet this kid. Okay. Well, that's good. Uh, next question. How do we effectively help kids deal with trauma 
if they are not emotionally ready. This person was here last night. We talked about trauma last mm -hmm. night. Um, trauma is defined as when I believe something is painful. And whenever a parent goes, it's not traumatic, get over it, you're being a baby, or even has a nice attitude about it, that's the worst thing you can do. Um, you, kids that experience trauma, whether it's real serious trauma like sickness, even death, divorce, anything that's broken, uh, insecurity, loss of a friend, it can be anything, failure. Um, a child and an early adolescent holds that but doesn't have the ability to reflect on it. If they do, it means something has brought it up right in the very concrete moment. Once they move into adolescence, somewhere around, four, I mean, mid-adolescence, 14 or 15, and they become more, the ability to access trauma and to bring it up, an adult that tries to force a kid to deal with their pain and trauma will usually force that kid to bury it deeper and to hide it, to rationalize it, to justify it. When a kid is ready, they will give you indications that they are somehow dealing with it. And so a parent's job and the five to one's job is to when you hear a kid actually or observe them being sad, to explore that feeling and allow what comes naturally out of them to move through that traumatic experience. Therapy is really a gift. Don't be afraid of therapy. And by the way, I believe in Christian therapists primarily, but with a serious enough issue, you, you got a kid that's cutting, for example, you want a, a, an expert in cutting more than a person who has done biblical counseling. I have a fake knee. You'd never know it. You look like, like an amazing athlete. I'm so incredible on the outside. Fake knee. I did not go to a biblical orthopedist. All right? I didn't want some hack who goes to a church to, to cut off my femur. All right? I want the guy who's the most pagan bonehead in the world that knows femurs. So don't necessarily be afraid of people helping with severe trauma. And five to one is where the kingdom of God, God can come into action. Uh, next question. How do we deal with unrealistic expectations that schools place on kids? And how can, how can we help or I help them to feel empowered? Without creating cynics. Now, power is different than being cynical. Don't create cynics. But don't let your kid's education get in the way of your kid's education. The school and the state have rules about showing up at school. When Katie was in seventh grade, I hadn't been, really had a good conversation with her for a few weeks, and she was going through stress. She might have been in ninth grade. But I went to school, and I checked her out for the day. And this is in California. And they go, well, you can't really do that. I said, you know, I'm a dad, and I'm checking her out. Is it an emergency? I said, absolutely, it's an emergency. It's a personal emergency. Oh, don't you have to, well, what is it? Well, you don't have to actually know. I'm just, it's a personal emergency, and it's really personal. So I said, okay. I took her out. I kidnapped her. I threw her backpack in the trunk. She couldn't get at it. And we drove to Disneyland and stayed there until close at midnight. And just screamed and hollered and laughed and yelled and made fun of people and figured out who, was the, who were the security cops. And, and she still, 26, talks about the amazing part of the day. She missed two tests, and it affected her grades. But then she went to Seattle Pacific and is getting is a 3.9 at Fuller Seminary as a master's student. She's done okay. I checked her out of school. In other words, you be the parent. And don't let the school system destroy your kid. But you don't have to be mean and cynical about it. Don't let your kid's education get in the way of your kid's education. I, I, I agree with that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> thanks, Chappie. Hugged me. You're a side, funny guy. Side hug. 
Youth pastors have to learn how the awkward side hug. That's what you have to do in youth ministry. You Touch. Just, it's, it's tough. Uh, okay, how do you encourage purity in kids when the culture says it's fine to have a girlfriend, boyfriend, girlfriend slash boyfriend? Not you like guys, hybrid, I love but. these. I just want to, part of my academic training is, is parsing how we think and what words we use. You know, it'd really be fun for you to look at what you text and just go out by word by word and what's all the baggage that's loaded beneath those words. It's really fun. Take it to your small groups, okay, and have people. um, Purity is therefore equated with not having a girlfriend or boyfriend at age 12. I mean, that's an interesting even thing there. And the purity is defined, um, don't have sex, okay? Just stop it. Don't think about it. Don't have sex. Um, okay, sexuality is a natural, good, God-given expression of the expression of a love, committed love relationship until you get married. <laughs> then it's a week of doing dishes. We call that foreplay, okay? <laughs> What's interesting about that is purity. We need to teach how to have appropriate behavior that's honoring of ourselves and our partners and, how to, and, and the goal of... Our, the expression of our bodies is to give that freely in the context of trusted relationships. And therefore, a kid that says they have a boyfriend or girlfriend of 12 is not necessarily against purity. Those are two totally separate issues. Kids have to develop social relationships. And if they, if, if they have a boyfriend or girlfriend and use that language, then conversations of how they are operating within the context of relationships in the family and with the five to one is incredibly healthy. Anything you know about that you can be in conversation about with your kid is a, is a win. It does not mean they're not being pure. It's when they make decisions that are hidden, that they're shamed about, that they don't want you to know about, that's when you got a problem. When things are above board and you built a conversation, a culture of conversation, when they're honest with you, that's when you talk about what does it mean to have a body that desires to be with another body as opposed to a person with another person and sharing that together. Men and women have to be in this together with your kids. That's a huge gift. So if your kid has a boyfriend or girlfriend in sixth grade, that doesn't mean they're not pure. That may actually be a great laboratory for you to begin to create who they're going to be at 14, 16, 22. There's a lot more there. I got actually books on that one, too. So the website, okay. Jeffclark.com. Yeah, yeah shut yeah, up, yeah. Reed. Okay. <laughs> I know we got to be done. Let's it's in go. all caps, right? And uh... <laughs> You got to have a password to get in. Knock it off. Okay, go. Okay, uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe one or two more questions here. Uh, you talked about the sports and people signing their kids. You talked about, wait, you talked about the, yeah, the sports and people signing their kids up when they might not have wanted to do it. I'm torn as I am not a believer that my kid will get that scholarship, but I want them to have experiences. Do I stop signing them up for experiences as I see Okay, that's a good question, actually. And that's a... Yeah, (laughs) let's close in prayer. Oh, as opposed to the others. Yeah, finally. That one. You know what? That one finally. Both of you stop it. I've been going for four days, all right? I need a break. All right, go Chiefs. All right, all that said, no, I, I find that... The others were really interesting. This is fascinating. How's that? Um, The verbal stalling. Your job is to try to navigate the boundaries and experiences your kids have as they grow up. 
All of them need to be in service of what's most important, and that is their identity, autonomy, and belonging within the context of family safety, within the context of attachment relationships, knowing that you are stewards of Jesus Christ, taking them as his own. Therefore, everything you're considering, you consider with that end-up long-term goal in mind. And so experiences that help them to develop their particular skill so that they will fulfill your dream for them as a teenager or an adult is what you avoid. How do you do that? Well, in, if you're in a married, the couple dyad has to be honest with each other, and you've got to listen to each other. If one's pushing it and the other's not sure, talk about it. But also, you need to have good friends where you're together talking about it as you care for each other's kids. So have community discernment before the Holy Spirit of what kind of decisions you make. And then I'd say live in freedom out of that. Sure, let's try competitive soccer and include the kid in the conversation of everything it means even though they don't get it. But then allow yourself, by the way, being on a competitive team at nine years old is not the end of the world. And if a kid is not working for them, quit. Who cares? The other parents will hate you. But these are stinking nine-year-olds. These are people that think that our commitments when they're seven, 10, 12 years old in our culture as the most important thing that they hang in there because everybody's relying on them is not the most important thing. But have dialogue along the way and even say that to a coach and a committee. We are going to make sure this is healthy for our kids. And if it's not healthy for our kids, we're at least going to start a conversation with you. And if things don't change, we may make the decision. This is not going to be a lifelong comment, um, um, commitment. In other words, take the reins in community, prayerful with the Holy Spirit, and then live in freedom. Well, I think that, uh, do we have one more? Oh, one, one last question. Uh, your thoughts on video games and volume of time spent? Um, as long as they're Bible video games and they watch <laughs> Christian movies that Rotten Tomatoes thinks are awful, then it's godly. How come everybody thinks just because a Christian makes a Christian film is supposed to be good? 3% on Rotten Tomatoes. Video games. Video games and use of the internet. Okay, let me tell you a couple. I'm sorry, quick things. First, none of you should have wireless internet for your kids in your, in your homes until they're out of high school. If they do, they should not know the password. Now, 90% of you are now mad at me. None of your kids should have uh, smartphones until they're in high school that have access to anything, to the internet. There's no reason for it. Um, you should have the passwords to every Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat. Every account they have, you should have passwords. In other words, technology are tools to use that we need to learn how to boundary and filter those things. And New York Times did a really great study. You can find this on, uh, on the web that uh, a guy asked all these CEOs of tech companies how they did as parents regarding technology. And to a person, they were more conservative than the average Christian family. You turn off all technology, TV, music, everything, um, somewhere around 6 o'clock. Every single meal that you have the opportunity to have as a family, half an hour before the meal starts, everybody comes and helps finish it off, even if they're five years old. You don't give chores that everybody leaves when they're doing their chore. You communally realize that God's given us the gift of celebration through meals, and we get to be in this together. Parents are the worst with technology. 
Turn off your DVD player. Take out the fuse in your, in your minivan or Hummer, depending on what part of Kansas you live. You don't, need the, you don't need the DVD when you're going on vacation. Maybe one movie, you put it back in and then pull it back out again. You turn off the phones. You don't answer email or text while you're in the kitchen or when you're around your kids, ever. In other words, technology becomes a tool that we model, and then we have boundaries around with our kids. So what's the amount of time? It's part of that. Don't let your kids watch Netflix in a room for hours. Video games online for hours. Conversation, relationships is the name of the game. Let me finish with this statement. I want to tell you something positive and then we're done. You, as a parent of your child, whether you're a foster parent, well, adopted for sure, natural parent, even a step-parent, you are in a place where you are responsible for the raising of a child. Theologically, in God's economy, you are the best person that has ever walked the face of the earth for your child. Nobody is a better equipped parent than you for your kid. You have been handpicked by God, men and women, for each of your kids to look them in the eye, to lift them up, to bless them, to ask forgiveness when you blow it, but to launch them into the arms of the Savior with fullest confidence. You are literally God's blessing and gift to your child. So go in confidence that he has empowered you to be the kind of parent you need to be. Hold that lightly with faithful stewardship, but go knowing that God himself has called you his representative and ambassador to your kid. Go knowing that the hope of the gospel is in God's power in and through you and not in your ability to pull this off. Amen. Thank you, Chap. Well, let's just express our gratitude to Chap. Thank you.